Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. Today, Real Clear Defense Editor David Craig speaks with retired Army Colonel and former General Counsel at U.S. Cyber Command Gary Korn about cyber war and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. What are the implications for the law of war and the possibilities of triggering larger NATO involvement in this conflict? How does Russia's use of cyber threaten the international rule of law? And why does it matter? Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the Hot Wash podcast. Today, we have retired Colonel Gary Korn, former general counsel at U.S. Cyber Command and program director at American University's Tech Law and Security Program. Good afternoon, Dr. Korn. How are you? Uh, Good afternoon. You know, my dad was a physician, so I'm Dr. Korn sounds funny to me. I just <laughs> not usually what I get called. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. And it's an auspicious time considering the current world circumstances, I, I suppose you could say. So I would like to start off with how you sort of perceive the threat, the cyber threat from Russia, specifically in terms of the Ukraine war, I suppose. Um, and then what sort of countermeasures, I suppose, you know, you've been, and we'll get in later about the, you wrote a really good article not long ago about how we should go forward with this, especially based off of some of the changes in 2018. Yeah. In terms of the, the conflict itself, I'd say we haven't seen as much activity as some maybe predicted beforehand. Um, and there's lots of speculation and analysis as to why or why not. Um, there's certainly been some activity just leading up to the the current escalation. And I emphasize escalation because Russia and Ukraine have been in an armed conflict since 2014, um, right? And Russia has used cyber uh, more than a few times in the execution of, of its, you know, war against Ukraine, in, in, certainly in my opinion. Um, probably the most notable one was the the not petcha operation in 2017 we could certainly come back and dissect that a little bit but so yeah i mean in the in the present circumstance um we haven't seen as much there's been some indication there were some website defacements and such um beforehand there's some indications that there may have been some activity to degrade satellite connectivity um and you know other than that though it, it's been sort of a hold and wait and see if there's something around the corner, right? Um, and again, there's a lot of reasons that that that, that might be. I think when you start looking at high-end kinetic operations and you're th- talking about cyber operations integrated into um, your combat operations, there are a number of sort of challenges there. First of all, what, what are you trying to achieve with it, an operation? Um, you know, and also timing and tempo you go to any commander and say, I've got a great whiz bang thing I can I bring to the to the table. And then the commander says, Okay, I need it on target at this exact time, synchronized with these other things. And you go, Well, I can give you about a five day window. <laughs> um and that doesn't doesn't necessarily work for the commander. So, you know, there could be a lot of different reasons why they've gone back to tried and true efforts at at simply pummeling the the, the Ukrainian populace. Right. And what do you make of, uh, there's a, you know, I can't remember which group it is. You'll be able to speak to this, uh, you know, of, of, civil, of civilian groups of hackers that have gone after Russia. 
Can you speak to that, to sort of the legal implications and if and when they were successful at all? Yeah, um, it, it's interesting. It's certainly muddying the landscape. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, I understand there's a there's a there's just a visceral, compelling case to help out wherever we can. Right. Let's let's just identify this for what it is. This is brute aggression from Russia um, to to try and get Ukraine to submit. Um, and, and it's a it's a, a war of aggression, as you know, we would say it's it's an unlawful war from the beginning. And certainly now with the escalation. Um, strictly speaking, uh, you know, when you're in a situation of armed conflict, um, civilians are presumptively. Uh, protected from acts of violence, from being made the object of attack. Um, there's always a caveat to that in the law that says, though, unless and for such time as those civilians directly participate in the hostilities. So just within the immediate context of the con- the conflict, uh, sure, technically you are at risk of being considered a, a participant um, in the way you're you're conducting those hacking activities. Um, and that means you can be targeted lethally, right? Um, you could be, um, those activities are probably violative of the criminal laws of, you know, not just the two states at issue. Um, you know, we, we, the United States have a computer fraud and abuse act that has extraterritorial application. Um, you know, we've seen indictments of, of various actors that um, even in situations where they're not hacking against the United States. So there's legal consequence and risk in that sense. Having said that, and this stuff matters to me, I, I worked it for years, right? Um, but if you have somebody who's a hacktivist sitting in, you know, pick a country, what is the likelihood that, you know, Russia is going to right now reach out and touch you right kinetically as a target um the other the other thing though that really it can be problematic about it is there's uncertainty whenever one of these operations goes off um as to who's actually behind it um and there is certainly greater risk of um you know this is sort of one of the bad points the bad ideas of hack back generally the you know in this case Russia can look at this and say hey this is coming from U.S. territory and we say then that it's the U.S. that's behind it and this is just another point of escalation and so you know you're you are a hacktivist you're sort of hearts in the right place maybe um, but you're also kind of making national security decisions potentially for the United States or whatever state you're sitting in at that moment and that can be dangerous. And doesn't that sort of make the international norms and laws relating to cyber difficult? Because, for example, I had a briefing from NSA a long time ago, and they showed us how they tracked down a cyber attack. But they said, we can't release that like in an international criminal court, because then it would reveal our sources and methods. And like you said, Russia can make it appear as though an attack came from us when in fact it didn't but how you know who's going to prove them wrong yeah well this is all some of the 
the broader challenges in managing this this crisis at the moment. Um, we can talk about what international law allows and doesn't allow. We can engage in a lot of discussions about uh, the implications of providing arms and doing this and doing that. At the end of the day, Vladimir Putin's going to make his own determinations about what his red lines are and what he thinks he needs to respond to in certain ways. Um, right. And that's just just the raw reality of it um, that has to be managed with that. Um, there's sure. I mean, the cyber environment is an environment that is, um, you know, it's ripe for um, clandestine, obfuscated type of activities uh, that makes it a challenge. But, you know, one of the things as I approached my work, certainly when I was at Cyber Command for five years and, you know, and otherwise that that's not necessarily unique, though, to the domain. There are some unique unique aspects to it. Um, it may be exacerbated in certain ways, but false flag operations, um, you know, covered activity that's been going on in statecraft and warfare for a long time. Um, and. So at the end of the day, you really have to peel through the fog and make a determination of what you know and what you don't know and what what level of risk are you willing to accept about uncertainty, right? Um, and, you know, sometimes the, the greater the potential harm you're facing, the more tolerant of risk of uncertainty you might have in, in fashioning a response. But you you have to work through calibrating that. That's no different than proving who who is the the actor behind a, a crime, right? Most criminals don't necessarily advertise that they're committing crimes. They try to hide that they're committing crimes. <laughs> and I prosecuted for a number of years. We were always happiest with the dumber criminals who made it easier to figure it out. But at the end of the day, you got to you got to peel through that um, and, and figure it out as an evidentiary question. That's like targeting too, identifying targets. Right. You have to figure out and what's the level of information you have to, you can rely on to identify your targets. Next up, I wanted to ask you about, you know, NATO has been talking cyber. Uh, there's a cyber working group. Will that play a role at all in the current situation, do you think? And what can they do? Well, I mean, NATO for some time, um, I mean, there, there's a lot going on and a lot at play. Um, everyone is potentially vulnerable. And if um, you know, at least in my estimation, Putin right now is, you know, running full up against the reality that this is going to be as easy as he thought. Um, they're not faring well. They're, they're stalled in a number of places. In fact, you know, some of the reporting today looks like, you know, a sizable portion of their force near Kiev may be actually surrounded and cut off. Right. And so, I think, you know, he's facing some of the reality that regime change and his broader objectives may not be achievable, but he's still going to try his darndest to coerce and compel an outcome that that still works for him, right? Um, is face saving and he achieves something and he will use levers where he can, uh, you know, and, and one of them might be rattling the cyber saber, so to speak, um, either to, you know, message. So NATO needs to up its posture in terms of security and defense. The U.S. needs to up its posture in terms of security and, and defense. The president has made some announcements in the last several days indicating that there are threat streams and that everyone needs to sort of 
elevate our game. Um, you know, but beyond that, NATO over time has has certainly made its policy statements correct, in my view, that a certain cyber operation of, of a certain consequence, which they don't specifically dev- define for, for reasons, um, could be considered a triggering moment for Article 5 of the, of the NATO treaty, which is, you know, the collective self-defense mechanism. And so an attack on one um, gives each of the states the, the, the right to come to the aid of the others under the collective uh, construct. So that's part of it, too. I'm sure they're sort of studying all this. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's ultimately a decision. What do we consider um, an intolerable enough operation with consequence that we would say we have to respond with force? So you in your recent article that I was speaking about, it's the national security decision making in the age of technology. You talk about the OODLU, you know, shortening the decision-making time, and especially when it comes to offensive operations, which is difficult. There's been a lot of publications, you know, that's why we need to come up with cyber norms and things. But countries like China and Russia aren't going to have, nor would they probably adhere to any sort of cyber norms. Uh, What do you see as offensive options, or would they typically only be used as a countermeasure? Well, I think there's a there's a spectrum of things that you you might be able to do. You know, for me, you have to sort of bin them a little bit. Are are we talking about um, you know an operation or activity that is meant to disrupt? an adversary cyber operations that are potentially threatening us or, or, you know, in motion, that is sort of the core of the defend forward concept, which is part of the, the 2018 DOD cyber strategy, which is a kind of big shift moment. Um, you know, that's, that's a disruption model in, in a lot of ways for me, I see parallels to, you know, there's espionage goes on, on, back and forth uh, between states, we don't consider it to be internationally unlawful, right? But we also don't sit back and say the fact that it's not a violation of international law doesn't mean we can't take action to counter espionage. And we do things to counter espionage. So, So that's one bucket. And the target sets you'd be thinking about, the type of activities you might be engaging in, the effects you'd be delivering, are kind of different. If you're talking about deterrence at another end, which often gets confused, now you're talking about um, an unrealized threat of action. And is it credible? Are you positioned to, to execute on it? And you're telling your adversary, if you know, if you go here, there's going to be pain that we're going to inflict. But there's a spot in between of of compellence, right? Um, and in some sense, that's where we are, for example, with the sanctions and other measures. Uh, the the threat of all that didn't deter Putin. His calculus obviously was different. And now we're applying them and seeking all the different ways we can to get him to change his decision calculus and back off. Um, and so could cyber play a role in that? Yes, theoretically. Um but that's a sort of, to me, a different type of target set and different types of effects that you might be thinking through with different legal implications. 
Well, you know what it reminds me, a good analogy, I think, maybe, is the left of launch in missile defense, you know, uh, where you would attack an, an, an opponent's capability to launch a nuclear strike before they are even able to launch, you know, so to speak. Is what sort of good, and I think maybe a good analogy for what you mentioned in offensive cyber and the use of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes you know we 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 use offense and defense in different ways um, in different contexts, and you know, it's like an artillery piece. Um, am, am I pulling the lanyard for final protective fires against an onslaught that's coming at me? Oh, well, I'm I'm shooting it defensively, right? Or I'm using it to prep an objective before I launch an assault i'm using it offensively i'm doing this you know same thing <laughs> i'm i'm ranging in my artillery i'm pulling the lanyard it's the same capability um so you know we tend to talk in cyber um about out of network operations and activities you know not not our internal cyber security activities but out of network as offensive um but it's more nuanced than that uh so if i'm defending forward I'm still operating out of my network, but I'm doing it, as I said, in a sort of counter cyber construct to disrupt the adversary's ability to you know, maneuver on me. Is that offensive or defensive? And does it really matter from a law perspective? It kind of doesn't, um, you know, except in some you know, specific circumstances. Um, so, yeah, the left of launch. I mean, in fact, I, I included that in a chapter I wrote a few years back that talked about the legal structures for, for cyber. Um, and that is an example where you might want to use it affirmatively, um, right? But in, if you have it, you've, you've gained access to that system, um, you're not necessarily, it's dormant. Like, hopefully, you're able to maintain persistent access without detection and it's only at that point where it looks like the enemy's actually taken the act, you know, the launch against you. Yeah, now you're going to you're going to use that to disrupt the launch in a real self-defense moment. So next I want to get on, you know, probably where we're most vulnerable, which is infrastructure. You know, I come from a family of economists, so a long time ago even I, my biggest fear that popped into my head was, you know, what if they were to attack and take Wall Street down, for example? But, you know, starting with that, maybe, can you talk us through the vulnerabilities we have there? And, you know, on the civilian sector side, you know, of course, Cyber Command and NSA have the other aspects of government pretty well handled. But, you know, some of these important things like infrastructure, the power grid and other things like that are still incredibly vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, like it, it is without sort of repeating what is often said but it, it is a it is an overall system that was built security was an afterthought and we're trying you know we generally are trying very hard to to deal with that catch up re-architect aspects of the system to to buy down vulnerability risk um but it is an completely interconnected environment where there are all sorts of vulnerabilities at different points. Um, you know, we've seen this through operations like solar winds now where you've got a supply chain and a broad access operation that then like any, you know, good military operator, you're going to exploit your successes and abandon your, 
your less successful or failures points, right? Um, so there are vulnerabilities. You know, it's it's hard for me to sit here and categorize what they are at any given point. Um, you know, I'm not the CISO for all these different companies or entities, um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's vulnerability generally. Um, how do we deal with that? We've been trying to again improve security, improve resiliency, improve information sharing back and forth between the government and the private sector, uh, so that people are better aware of what's happening out there, can focus their efforts and prioritize the security they're they're putting in place. Um, but there there is vulnerability, and so now you're. Has the, has the adversary identified that vulnerability? Has it been able to exploit that vulnerability? Has it been able to exploit it in a way that it can uh, deliver serious consequence or effect? Um, like those are those are a whole bunch of series of questions you'd have to kind of look at, and there are people who are looking pretty hard at them. Um, you know, I think the the question then though is begged: What? Okay. It's it's the old you know known known unknowns or unknown unknowns and um, if they app if they happen to penetrate um, now you have to kind of step back and assess what is it they've just done have they defaced a website have they brought a you know a website down for certain days is this a DDoS operation or have they gotten into a critical infrastructure SCADA system and they're turning the lights off for an entire city for some period of time. Um, you know, those are all different and how we would look at and respond is sort of going to depend very much on how we categorize, characterize what has just happened to us. Well, that's a good lead into your recent article I just brought up too, is when we are attacked, how do we close the loop or the gap, as you call it, the speed of relevance to respond to such an attack in a timely manner? to prevent it from becoming worse than it is or having the appropriate uh, response. Yeah. I mean, that is part of the ongoing challenge of, of government coordination, right? Internal coordination and then external communication and coordination with the private sector. Um, our, go- our government is cumbersome and in many ways that's, built by design or it's it's not necessarily a bad thing and deliberation about serious important things matters but there are times when speed is of the essence um, and and trying to reconcile those can often be challenging part of the question is sort of the 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 response and mitigation right so the systems that are being impacted and affected how quickly can we put resources against that, get those fixed up and running again. What do we have in terms of backup? Like if you look at um, some of the Russia's operations against Ukraine and Georgia, against the power grids, part of it was some resilience built in either as legacy or by design so that they could quickly go back to old analog processes to get the power running again. Okay, so you were successful in messing with my cyber components here but not to the effect that you hope to achieve, right? So there's that side of it. The the harder side is um, whether you are going to um, take, an, again, an out-of-network cyber operation. You're going to task 
some element of the U.S. government, cyber command or otherwise, to take some action outside of the network to either engage with and disrupt this activity, right, or have some countermeasure where you're you're imposing a cost elsewhere within the adversary system in response to get them to stop, right, or to pay um, for what's got, what's happened, impose that cost. Um, that certainly gets harder. The implications are different than doing stuff in your own networks um, and at home. And and you know we made certainly made gains in in that 2018 time period to um, perhaps flatten a little bit and and make some of the decision processes faster. But you know there's there's fair questions about how you get the, the level of coordination and deliberation baked into that in a timely manner. My next question, I guess, <clears throat> potentially my last question is the future th- sort of th- cyber threat environment with the advent of AI and quantum computing and the increase in technology to where I think you talked, I think it was your article where you talked about, you know, the AI will expedite the ability of bots to perform of you know a wide array of cyber activities um what is your prognosis for the future cyber threat that we should be most concerned about yeah i mean listen i i am not i'm not a technologist um i play one on tv right i um i had to work very closely with people who are very smart on these things uh and to provide the legal advice I had to provide, um, like the whiteboard was my good friend and I would be pulling in operators and interrogating them to the nth degree. Um, you know, there's certainly, um, been some proof of concepts whereby you can have self learning, you know, malware that can crawl the internet and identify vulnerabilities and develop exploits on the fly and all sorts of things. Um, You know, that's sort of scary thought um, because. Well, Stuxnet was somewhat like that in a way it would go and infect a computer and then leave without a trace, I guess almost. Right. Well, I I mean, Stuxnet had to, to the extent you know, the reporting on Stuxnet, um, that it, it was very tailored to, um, specific systems and vulnerabilities. And so even, even if it, uh, spread beyond targeted systems, it really didn't do anything. Um, now, I mean, there's some who would say the fact that it spread all, you know, beyond and to other systems is a big problem. Uh, you know, I, for one, would say, why? Because there's an infinitesimally, infinitesimally small loss of computing power on that system. You know, maybe, maybe not. But, um, you know, back to the question, when you have, you know, it's hard enough right now to get human decision making at the speed of cyber, so to speak. And you now introduce where the cyber capabilities are moving and deciding in nanoseconds on their own, um, you know, that, that is going to be a big challenge into how we confront that and how we bake in, um, you know, responsive measures and countermeasures, uh, to do that. 
where you're now suddenly you know, you're standing back and hoping the game is working itself out in the box <laughs> the way you want it to. So is there any sort of legal framework that would play a role in any of that? Well, I mean, to this point, the, the concept of, you know, artificial intelligence in military operations has been, you know, the focus of a lot of attention. There's DOD policy on this in terms of when you can use it for lethal autonomous systems. Um, and how much intervention does there have to be in the ultimate decision-making process, um, you know, by a human, um, you know, even within that discussion, if you look at like a C whiz or, or something, we, we look at those systems a little bit differently than, uh, a, a, a lethal system, you know, a capability that you're going to use to conduct attacks on certain items. In the cyber context, um, you know, not every cyber operation involves an effect that constitutes a use of force in international law or an attack in part of armed conflict. Um, so that would factor into it as well, I would think. Um, you know, it's still a little bit um, disconcerting when you have these things happening on their own decision-making timeline. But if it's if it's just some low-level activity that's, you know, bots taking down bots um, and not causing destruction and these sorts of things, there, there may be less concern legally with not having a human in the loop, so to speak. Um, but it's still an important question, and it's going to be hard to figure out those frames and how to deal with it in a decisionally relevant time frame. Because we'll potentially have to respond to somewhere like China and Russia that won't abide to the same legal framework that we do. So we at least have to have some sort of a defensive capability prepared for that. Sure. Right? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, you get, you get into the famed, you know, risk of the Thucydian trap that they teach in the war colleges, right? Like um, at some point, and this is a little bit, you know, I think, Vladimir Putin is as disingenuous as they come on these matters. But, you know, if you listen to some of the the propaganda that's coming out, well, this was this was preemptive because Ukraine, you know, if we didn't do this, Ukraine was going to attack us with all the backing from NATO. Right? That is a lie. But to the extent that they even thought that that's Thucydian in, in its thinking um, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, uh, there's always a challenge when you acknowledge that your adversary um, really doesn't give a hoot about the rules-based order and international law. Um, I, I'm going to say, um, you know, sorry to call out the good general, but I, I heard General Clark on CNN the other night, and he made a comment um, to the effect that in thinking about no-fly zones and neutrality law and, and such, that the I'm paraphrasing, but like that the lawyers in the Pentagon are coming out of the cracks, you know, um, in the same breath that he said, this is an all-out assault by Russia on the rules-based order. Well, you can't have it both ways, okay? So <laughs> integrating the law and legitimacy into what we do is core to who we are. And we can't go down a spiral to the bottom 
just because we know our adversaries aren't going to pay attention to it. We just need to be able to um, operate effectively against what we anticipate they're going to throw our way. Right. You bring up a really good point. And that was actually going to be in my follow on question was we still need to approach establishing codes of conducts and rules of law f- for the behavior of nation states, if not only to have the moral high ground in response to someone like Russia or China, if they were to attack us or other allies, right? Yeah. You know, um, I wrote in another piece recently um, in response to an argument. Um, I won't get too into the depth of it, but that, you know, that the the deterrent value of international law, right? Uh, I've seen international law play a very tempering effect in our own decision-making at, at the highest levels. It's important stuff. Um, but, I don't think naming and shaming as a lawbreaker has done anything to deter Vladimir Putin. And we're seeing that, you know, case in point. This was, I wrote this before the current escalation, you know, that this didn't even serve as a speed bump to them taking Crimea and and doing these other things, right? Um, But what I said was the the value, at least in my mind, it's not so much that it serves as a deterrent. It serves as a unifying point for a broader set of nations. And we're seeing that very much play out. The coalition that's forming is very much, I'd say, at its core, um, unified by a shared sense of it's better to play within a rules-based order than to not. The alternative is not a world we want to live in. Um, and so we do need to continue to push for the development of better understandings of international law. In fact, like I'm organizing a symposium in June at the law school here on how states are starting to really speak about their views on international law and cyber and how it's evolving and where it should head. It's important stuff. Normative behavior is important. Um, so that's sometimes it's hard to reconcile, but I see it coherent in that way. This is about who's in the club of acceptable behavior, right? There's benefit to that. Don't be the Putins. Dr. Korn, I think you just summarized the importance of this, especially in the legal framework. Um, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Uh, hopefully we don't have to talk again about some major catastrophic cyber event that was instigated by Putin in the future. Any any parting thoughts that you might have for us before we sign off? Well, no, I mean, it's a great. Enjoy talking. Um, I hope we can talk in the future um, again. Yeah, just not necessarily about something catastrophic. <laughs> and I, I would just sort of my own two cents on the broader situation right now with Russia and Ukraine. Um, there really is something much bigger at stake here. And I hope folks don't lose sight of that. Um, you know, how we manage this is really hard. Um, it's easy for those of us who are not sitting in Mariupol or wherever getting pummeled right now. But I'm looking at the Ukrainians themselves in terms of um, whether some settlement is is the right answer um they're voting very loudly they're saying our sovereignty our territory our freedom 
matters, you know, and this isn't some give Putin a reward, you know, for what he's done so far. Exactly. Right. Um, maintain that resolve is going to be hard, but we need to maintain the resolve. Well, Dr. Korn, thank you so much. I appreciate you being with us today. All right. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news and coverage of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. For editor David Craig and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.